Hello, this is the Plant Book Club. Hello, welcome to the Plant Book Club, the podcast where we talk about books that have something to do with plants. Uh, hi, I'm Joram, and with me, and or I'm part of a group with me, as <laughs> always, is Tegan and Ellen. Hi. Hello. I, that, that music just like lulled me into some sort of re relaxation now. I'm just like oh, floating around. Beautiful. No, we had um, a little dance party. Yeah. Hi, I'm Tegan. I'm Ellen. Yes. And we, yeah, every month we come together and talk about books. Um, and this week uh, we talk about, or the, the book that we read in the past month is called Fruit from the Sands, uh, the Silk Road Origins of the Foods We Eat from um spengler just is said on the on the back here but the full name i will have for you in a second is robert and spengler <laughs> the third um yeah. yeah it's a book i chose last time we talked and um yeah how did you all like it before i say sorry for choosing it <laughs> no i don't think you have to say sorry i think it was a, quite a difficult book it was like very academic in some parts but there was also like some super interesting parts in there as well so we can discuss the pros and cons of the book I guess yeah how did you like it Ellen I thought it was based on obviously exhaustive and fascinating research and I learned a lot yeah so like Robert Spengler himself is a paleo ethnobotanist an archaeobotanist archaeobotanist yeah so he is an actual active researcher as far as i can tell um at a max planck um mm -hmm. so it's definitely taking that kind of tone it's got a very um research focused tone and it's, it's very dense with information and also references so it's it's quite scientific i would say yeah to me it read a little bit like a, a review paper it was very dense with information and i mean you can already tell by the book i think a third of it is references and appendices mm -hmm. and stuff um so yeah it has a ton of information in there it's like yeah references and further reading and acknowledgements and yeah so you you think you have a lot to read still left and then suddenly um yeah there's a big <laughs> a big chunk of book that's just additional information I think we should break down what the book is kind of about. So it's, I mean, from the title, you can sort of get an idea. It's about this Silk Road. It's kind of the central thread that runs through the book, but it's really discussing the origins of all the common foods that we eat, basically, um, when we domesticated them and how they moved across this Silk Road and became kind of popular in different places. Yeah, and it, yeah? Yeah, and it goes by sort of, it's, it's structured first, um, Yeah, was for, like the the second half is structured after all the different foods, and the first one, uh, the first part is um, just in general the the, the roots themselves, uh, and based on which where they found evidence and and traces to sort of reconstruct where this root went down and what where the different goods and fruits and and food stuff that was um, traveling along these routes. Yeah, I think like we could discuss what our favorite bits are and what our least favorite bits are. Should we start with like the stuff we didn't like just from the from the off go, and then we'll go into the bits that we thought were really cool, just to kind of yeah. yeah. So, what were your least Sounds favorite good. parts, Ellen? I uh, really enjoy reading books like this as a science journalist because so many books 
Famous books written by scientists are gorgeous, and there are excellent scientists who are also writers and podcasters like yourselves that do an incredible job. Um, And this book was just chock full of really interesting information that was really poorly, (laughs) poorly communicated. A lot of passive voice. It was hard to understand. I kind of ended up taking my favorite interesting tidbits because uh like I found it hard to organize the book in my head as a zeitgeist like I was gonna write discussion questions for y'all but I didn't Mm -hmm. really feel like I had enough of the books like I didn't understand the book well enough to write discussion questions honestly um but I do have some favorite tidbits to share when we get to that part so I, I think that's the way it was structured was based on mostly the different foods themselves. So there's a whole chapter which is on millet. Well, actually, there's a whole chapter that's on uh, brushtail millet and then fox millet. broomcorn and then foxtail is the other type of millet. So yeah. there's like, if you're not particularly into millet, that is quite a lot of stuff on millet to read about. And for me personally, I found the stuff on the millet and the wheat at the start and even to some degree, like the barley and the legumes. I wasn't so, I didn't really care much about millet. So that was a a very dense amount of information. But then when it got to like the spices and the tea at the end, that stuff was really cool to me. Like I, it was shorter sections, a bit more broken up and also just all these different processes and a bit more of the politics and the mythology, which was some of my favorite bits that came in. But yeah, yeah, I think. um, Oh, I thought it was incredibly frustrating how he did not really go into detail about himself and his fellow researchers. He Mm -hmm. clearly has this absolute dream job, (laughs) archaeobotanist. He's traveling the world doing this really cool research. And I feel, honestly, I feel robbed that I didn't get to know more about that. Like the process of the archaeology, the people involved. A lot of the times when he would say scientists' names, he would just say them. And yes, no not background. Go into any more detail about who they were or give us any sort of description of them at all, there including some... himself. I feel like I don't know very much about Robert Spingler after reading this book. And I feel like he must be an interesting person doing interesting things. And I would have appreciated more about this process of the science and the process of that archaeology. Yeah. This is actually something I had as a question was like, how, what did you guys think about the author's insertion into the narrative? Because I kind of feel like Ellen did that there wasn't enough of it. But then when it did happen, I was also annoyed because like it was confusing then because there would be these very short, like sometimes short stories, which were in a very different tone from the much more um, academic bits of the book that were surrounding them. Or sometimes it was also a direct reference to his own research. And this I also found made me uncomfortable because in some parts he would even say, oh, um, one, on page 87 there's something which says, one report of some reliability, in brackets, my own, comes from the site of blood. And I was like, that's just, I that makes me not believe it's reliable when you say it's your own. But on the other hand, I'm appreciative that as a scientist, he is disclaiming that it's his own work and, and showing his butt. So I just found that when he did insert himself, it made me confused. Like that was because it was not 
a lot and not no no i had a similar feeling of um that whenever he became present as a person as someone with opinions it was often critiquing other people's work and putting mm -hmm. the the other work in context and i'm not enough of an expert in this specific field to judge whether or not this was justified but it felt like a very sort of a dry narrative and just playing down the facts and whenever he brought up an opinion it was just like yeah there was this other study i don't really believe this study because this and that reason and uh, here's how it probably was uh, um like here are the things that actually are likely to be true and yeah as you said it didn't really give me much joy or did it didn't paint a nice picture of of his work of himself of his own part in this research in this story like i have no idea what what he's like apart from knowing a lot of of these facts and and weighing them against each other i have an example of that like the critiquing thing so i think in page 100 of my book so i think it's during the part about wheat he's talking about um dating when this was domesticated and he says um this has been shown by these people they believe based on a certain fan taped fan-shaped phytolith form that there was wheat in this area at this time and then it's um it follows with all attempts that my colleagues and i have made to confirm these findings have been unsuccessful and that again is the thing where like well okay just because you couldn't confirm it does that mean yeah. it's not confirmable but then there were some really charming bits as well where he did insert himself in so there was like this discussion about mallow which i had never heard of but it's a crop that um he likened it to okra it kind of makes things slimy and it says people in the sichuan plains make a slimy soup from it from the mallow which like all sichuan cuisine tastes amazing so like as Alan said, clearly he's been in these locations and he's had these interactions and he then tells a little bit of a story about ordering this mallow soup in this region, but it leaves you wanting more. Like you want to know more about what he's doing and kind of the journey to make these discoveries, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was one of my favorite parts too. <laughs> and yeah, throughout, I think he could have... I think he could have benefited from a good editor, honestly, who's like, this reads like an academic paper. A lot of it is in the passive voice. Readers won't really know who these scientists or even these plants are. Like, mm. you have to define them more. And then the book could have been really interesting and really, I think, a good experience. Yeah, uh, we haven't talked about <laughs> the like the, the lists. So many lists. This is the 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 one sort of narrative device, or it's not even a narrative device. The one like text device that he's using is lists. Like the entire book essentially is a list of of things. Like the chapters are no, just a list no, here, of, of of different. Here I would plants. disagree with you because I think the lists was particularly problematic at the start of the book, which for me made it really hard to get into the book. And then after the first like 50, 60 pages, they dropped off and that made it much more readable. So I think but what in, the did, very, in the introduction, it was really hard to get through. I, I felt like getting PTSD whenever a list would come up later on. Um, when I was reading... <laughs> You're very dramatic. <laughs> I was reading... What was it? Just I just read up on something uh, before we started. And he went back uh, to... I think it was types of tea that he started to list. And I was just like... But that no no, oh, no, no I disagree. Types of apples. But it was he was talking about apples, and okay. then he would suddenly list like 
over uh, five, six lines of text, he would list Look, apples. The tea, the tea, I disagree with you because that was saying, hey, you taste all these teas and you think they're all different, but it's all one species. That had a narrative value. The listing the types of pasta, page 36, literally shapes of pasta, less value, but I, it, it made me very happy. <laughs> that list was a joyful list for me, like farfalle, like linguini. <laughs> like, I could read that for five pages worth of, of pasta lists. <laughs> That's where we are different because I, I was just like... Why is he? Why is he telling me the types of pasta that exist? Because um, <laughs> at that point, I was just like, like I, I just it made me happy. Then I was like, yeah, no. you can list the the foods, and now you're listing pasta as well. Like, yeah, <laughs> you do you. Like, really embrace the list. How did you feel about the list, Ellen? Oh, I thought they were absolutely unbearable. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but the pasta one, That's right? What? Except for the pasta one. No, I, I skimmed all the lists, honestly. Uh, I got nothing from the list. Joram messaged us at, near the middle of the month, I think, and was like, when do the lists end? And I was like, never. Yeah, it's just... <laughs> it's the um, whole um, book. Okay, so the... the, the My- perf- no, no, Yaram, no. We're doing a pasta list now. The most beautiful thing about the pasta <laughs> list, see if you can pick it up. The invention of ballerina, bucatini, cannelloni, capelli d'angelo... Uh, cocciolette, farfalle, fettuccini, fusilli, fusilli, lasagna, linguini, macaroni, penne, <laughs> pericatelli. Can you pick up what it is? It's alphabetized. It's a yeah. list of 30 pastas <laughs> and they're alphabetized. And that is just the most perfect thing that I have ever come across. Like, no, it made it, me so when I realized it was <laughs> alphabetized, it just made me so happy. It, it, to me, it felt like going to Wikipedia to list of pasta types and then copy pasting it and then turning all of the list items um, with a comma in between into like a list in the text. Just <laughs> okay, so <laughs> sorry, no, not for me. My, my problem with the lists is not like they, they definitely they hold value or they hold information, but very often also later on um the lists made it really hard for me to like i lost the point in the middle of the list when they were particularly long i forgot what the sentence started so there's just like mm-hmm. a list of different fruit and nuts and in the middle of it i forgot why are we listing this again um uh, and it was particularly bad because for like i have a small child at home and whenever i pick up a book that he doesn't know yet he comes and like tries to grab my book so i thought like maybe i, I listen to the audiobook instead when i go for walks with him and don't do that as <laughs> it's <laughs> it's even worse when you have it as the audiobook um it's actually like technically the audiobook is fine it's like well read and so on but if you are just listening to a long list, you immediately forget what it's about. And it's just like, like nonsense. It doesn't, nothing sticks then. So we, we mostly all didn't like the list, except we all agree the pasta list was brilliant, obviously. Um, <laughs> was there anything else you didn't like before we moved to stuff that we do prefer? I have one more thing that I found a bit tricky. My, what I missed was um, any type of storytelling. If, if you just look at the basics of storytelling, like a basic narrative structure, um, that was all completely absent there. And I think it could have really benefited with just like a basic three-part storyline or anything like mm-hmm. it. Um, either so like Plant Book Club Editors Limited, we would have said, hey, Rob, insert yourself into the story more, make more of a narrative flow, maybe base it around your own travels in the region. Like, yeah get some yeah and also he i think he felt uncomfortable writing about his scientist friends you Mm -hmm. know his fellow researchers i mean 
to his credit, there's probably not that many of them. So he has to maintain really solid relationships with all of them. And I think the way he dealt with this discomfort is kind of just to some degree leaving them out a little bit, just putting their research in there and not really like getting into them as people or kind of his interactions with them. Like when I think this also gets to our complaint about when he said a study was controversial, he didn't really elaborate on it that much. Like a lot of the mm-hmm. times he would just like say the reason or say this was controversial. Yeah. And not elaborated on it at all. And I think as a journalist who has written about people, they nearly always dislike what you write mm-hmm. about them, <laughs> no matter what you write or how complimentary you think it is. And so I think he, his way of dealing with that was to just take the researchers out of it entirely. And I think that really kneecapped the book. Mm. And there was this weird thing of like, sometimes, as you said, there would be a person mentioned by name and multiple times and with a lot of description of their research, but nothing really about them. So, um, and then on other times it would just be like, a Chinese researching group did this or like a very like vague like my favorite group or least mm. favorite <laughs> controversial paper thing was the discussion about the Soviet era research um, mm-hmm. I think it was in the millet section yeah it was uh, quite early on uh, and then talking about how most of the evidence dates from the Soviet era and therefore he didn't really believe it that was the gist of it. And there's also, there was something in the millet, again, I think it was in the similar area about this aging of millet, which was controversial. And this is something which he clearly disagreed on very strongly. Um, there was a group who had aged it back to, I think, like 9,000 years before Common Era or something like that. I'm not sure the domestication. And he didn't believe it. This was very clear from the book. But there was kind of a comment about a study being published, like, a study came out and it used research by from the group in a study that was published just one month before, as if this was kind of a reason to disbelieve the science. And that made me uncomfortable as a scientist because it's quite common that scientists will develop a method, um, publish that, and immediately publish something using that method. So I, I also that to me, I was like, you're trying to under, you're trying to criticize this and there was a tone there that mm. I was like, no, 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 that's that's normal. That that's the good thing to do. Like, yeah. Mm. But now to the good part. What did you like? I have I have one more thing, if it's okay. Okay. I personally, I have a really bad sense of history. So this was a bit problematic for me. And I don't have a good um, sense of physical location. So I needed some maps in there. There was like one or two maps, but I needed to have more understanding of what was physically happening. And also, I know there's a list of the errors at the start of the book, but I didn't want to be constantly flipping back. But it would often be like, oh, and then the Tang Dynasty and then this dynasty. But I found it very hard to locate myself in space and time and i know a lot of this is because of my own ignorance um but to read it as somebody who doesn't have that background i think to make it more accessible this would have been really helpful like a few more dates and Mm. um and maybe contextualizing those dates in other ways as well if possible so like while the time dynasty was happening this was happening over the other side of the world or something i don't know um but also maps a few more maps could have helped me a bit i struggle with the basic concept of what does it mean when he says in the second millennia before common era is that then Mm. 1000 to 2000 probably right yes okay so many dates (laughs) lots of dates i just wanted to constantly be drawing out timelines and i was like i do not have time to do that to understand this book Mm -hmm. like a timeline every sentence basically 
so that's it a physical map and then a timeline to show and like one like you know i'm imagining a fold out thing in the middle of the book where it sort of shows millet comes here and then like this comes here and this would have been amazing yeah 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 i mean he didn't really do it chronologically right like he arranged it by by species and then by the research within the chapters which was just if he had done it chronologically or even geographically, geographically where he was just yeah. going through and doing this based on some sort of history, I don't know. It could yeah. have been organized so that it made more <laughs> yeah. sense. Which brings us sort of to the good parts because there was so much information in there. Yeah. It's just a shame that the format in which it was presented made it really inaccessible. Um, like I'm, I'm trying to to look back on it now and try to remember details, and I really fail. I can't really remember any details. But overall, um, yeah, there was just so much information there, and I think um, it's it's a very good starting point for, or even not even starting point. It's a very good resource no. for many different questions. If you want to specifically specifically look something up, that's what I liked most about the book. Mm-hmm. And then then it set out logically for that definitely as well. Like you just have to go to the section on millet instead of you know going throughout like that's that's what it set out for really as a resource i would say yeah my favorite thing from this book was that i learned that we all used to eat what we now use as bird seed and we loved it <laughs> yeah. i didn't did so we I, loved it <laughs> i think people did we loved bird seed <laughs> there was i loved his thing where it was like now we use this millet as bird seed and some russian children eat it as cereal (laughs) yeah there was also a really nice thing about how the greeks and romans think persians and others are uncivilized because they don't water down their wine like apparently the classy thing to do is to water down your wine and i thought that was beautiful i also highlighted that and marked (laughs) it to bring that up because i thought that was a real joke let me see this i really liked this other part that he just Spingler just happened to mention the word uh, corsned. Did y'all highlight now? this? No, corsned? Corsned. Okay, let me find the exact place. Should we try and guess what it means? Maybe you can read us the sentence and we can try to guess from oh, the yeah, context. That would, be, that would be a great practice. I mean, I also have like some, some quiz questions if, if you want. Um, this this one is specifically for you so in in the section that's specifically about i want to say it's the barley section there's a story that's attributed to wang fu um a very ancient tale and in it there's a debate between the personifications of tea and beer about who is more important (laughs) who wins the debate uh i i completely I i might have skipped that part but um I think I would say that's uh, beer that's winning it because beer can, like provides you with all the calories and you can it's quite uh, a good um, basis for for nutri- nutrition definitely has more nutritious uh, nu- nutritious value than tea so I would say it's beer that wins but I don't it's probably not the argument that like this in this mythical tale they're probably not like yeah the calorie content and the content of macronutrients is different you were wrong but you were wrong because it's a trick question because in the story water then butts in and both of them have to shut up (laughs) aha fabled 
<laughs> oh no, once I really again. like that section. <laughs> um, the other really cool thing I liked, I mean, Ellen, you're still looking for the reference, right? So, yes, I had it pulled okay. up earlier and now I can't find it. Okay, we'll keep looking. Um, the other thing I really liked was that there was this trading between China and Tibet. And like it wasn't super peaceful, the relationship perhaps, but they had a trading tea. And there was this discussion about how, so China had the tea and Tibet wanted the tea. Um, but the Tibetans couldn't really, like you bring in cartloads of tea and then the Tibetans couldn't really bring anything out because tea is quite lightweight. And what the Tibetans had was basically yak butter, as far as I could tell, like yak butter <laughs> or yak meat. Um, so in the end, they just like started swapping horses for tea because at least the horses like, could move on their own and didn't have to be carried by the guy who get brought the tea in. So then this, this route where they were doing the trading became called the tea horse road because they would just trade <laughs> horse for tea, which is, I mean, those poor horses, like they're thinking, okay, so basically you've taken some dry sticks and leaves and that's what my life is worth to you. Like now I'm going. <laughs> um, and then from that, they talk about how Tibet and China had this basically, um, peace through caffeine addiction and i'm quoting there so tibet didn't like wanted to kind of expand but they wanted to get tea from china so they kind of didn't do anything because they needed to get their their tea supply happening so mm -hmm. this was also yeah, a nice I remember that part yeah yes. that was a super cool part in the book okay i found it it's under the barley section and i'll okay. read y'all the two sentences before and you can try to guess what corsned is and that's c-o-r-s in ED. Course. In ancient Greece and Rome, the cereal had religious significance, notably as a symbol of Demeter or Ceres, the goddess of agriculture. In the Iliad, sacred barley meal is sprinkled over recently bred animal offerings, and in the Odyssey, white barley flour is served as an offering to appease the dead. Barley bread was used in ancient divination rituals such as alphitomancy, and he does define this one, a means of identifying the perpetrator of a crime, and in a similar way in the Anglo-Saxon practice of corsned, or morsel of excretion. Uh, we're feeding it to dead people? Is it like an offering to dead people? Yeah, I have no idea. That's a good guess. Yaram? I have no idea what that could be. Okay, okay, now I'm gonna, I immediately had to know what this was, so I looked up the Wikipedia page, which has an amazing definition. Um, in Anglo-Saxon law, corsned, also known as the accursed or sacred morsel, or the morsel of excretion, as Spingler told us, the morsel of excretion, <laughs> was a type of trial by ordeal that consisted of a suspected person eating a piece of barley bread and cheese, totaling about an ounce in weight and consecrated with a form of ex exorcism as a trial of his innocence. If guilty, mm -hmm. it was supposed to be... If guilty, it was supposed the bread would produce convulsions and paleness and cause choking. If innocent, oh, wow. it was believed the person could swallow it freely and the bread would turn to nourishment. That's not bad, though. I mean... That's, that's, pretty, that's a pretty good deal. Yeah, trial by eating cheesy bread. An ounce of bread and cheese? Yeah, but yeah. like basically you're only screwed if you have severe like barley or lactose intolerance. Otherwise, you're okay. <laughs> Which compared to like witch trials where it's like either you float <laughs> or you sink. And if you sink, you're innocent. Like this, like trial by cheesy bread sounds amazing. This is great. Yeah, I kind of think we should bring back this uh, 
this method of justice. <laughs> in, in England, pizza. many of the, the ancient laws are still somehow in practice, right? There's always these yeah. like, popular stories about like, yeah, actually this, this law was never refuted, so you still can do cr trial by combat. So maybe, Tegan, you, I think what you should do as you are still in this country, as of now, you should like do a crime, any, any crime, and then demand trial by cheesy bread when they catch you. <laughs> the one I always heard was that like, if you graffiti or deface a a bridge or under a bridge you still get deported to the colonies so like free to get to australia if i go and like write something on a bridge <laughs> yep so yeah i thought it was um honestly such a tragedy that he, that spingler didn't write that out in the text because it's such a good bit yes. but also he's assuming that we have that knowledge then like i As a group, I don't think we're overly ignorant about like bizarre historical practices. I feel like it's a, it's a strong hobby of Yoram's and the rest of us, okay, we dabble. <laughs> but um, like, like I'm supposed to know what course that is, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, kind of, at least in the United States, like as a, I went to school for a science, you know, I got a biology degree uh -huh. and It was on you to know what people were talking about. Like, I feel like Spingler is really benefiting from this academic culture of if you don't understand me, you're stupid. You know, like it feels like he wrote this for his worst academic energy to intimidate them and make them feel <laughs> stupid because <laughs> there's no way you could understand it without having like both wicked, like the whole internet and also like constantly drawing timelines and like geographies for yourself to understand everything you know I don't I know that's, that's my rant like as a science journalist if if someone doesn't understand me like I feel like that's on me and I feel like that's something mm -hmm. I learned in journalism school versus like when mm -hmm. I went to school for science Yeah, we've had that rant here and I about like understanding and, and it's, yeah, it's the onus of the person who's communicating to make sure that their communication works. But I think like that to me would be the overall summary of the book would be that there's absolutely something for everyone in here. There's so many different things and it's so packed. But because of that, I can't think of a single person who would be able to have access to every single part Equally, I mean, obviously there are some people, but it's a very specified audience who has active interest in all of these different things and also has the accessibility to it based on these, you know, you know, the knowledge that you have to have to read the book. So that was like, again, swings and roundabouts where like on one hand, it's really amazing with so much information, but on the other hand, it can be a little bit inaccessible at times. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely not something yeah. you can read back to uh, uh, front to back. It's something that you can look up in chunks and find specific bits of information um but but what you just talked about ellen now this like bread trial that was one of the parts that i really adored about the book was all these links to the mythology of like it's it wasn't just about history there was different layers so there was history and there was like humans but then there was also like okay this this grain or this seed is so ancient that it has become part of the mythology so obviously like persimmon is the really classic example like in the greek myths um, not persimmon um pomegranate uh persephone ate these pomegranate seeds and therefore she had to stay in hell that was like it's part of the greek mythology that's how long 
um, pomegranates have been in the Greek mythology, but there were some really great myths that I had never heard of before, which came up. And yeah, I don't know. Did you did you guys have any of them that you you thought were awesome? Yeah, same. I have one here of Herodotus, um, mm-hmm. and he described the people he called the Scythians. And he described them as cannabis-smoking, bloodthirsty mountain warriors (laughs) who drank wine out of the skulls of their enemies. However, he also noted that the Scythian farmers grew millet as one of their main crops, along with onions. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which I think he said to... It's not really clear, but I think that made him like them more than them being cannabis smoking warriors yeah. who drank the He's blood like, of their they enemies. They party too much, but at least they make a boring grain. <laughs> like that only what Russian children eat is porridge now. So that's a plus. <laughs> I would not go to their parties, but I would go to like their quiet Sunday afternoon supper. Yeah, exactly. That touches on one of the questions that I wrote down for you guys, which is, um, did you get excited about eating any of these ancient uh, grains or fruits from there, like millet or buckwheat or some of the things that he's talking about? Because he goes to great length in explaining like how important these crops were for the, the rise in population, for the advancement of technology, and also for war, because suddenly they had all of the surplus from the efficient farming of millet and wheat and other things. Um, so did it make you excited about like maybe growing millet, raising an army and <laughs> defeating your neighbors? There was a section about how some king claimed that he had introduced crops into like, you know, again, the mythology that this king had brought these crops into the land and, and Spengler was like, this is clearly not true. Like he made it up. So it did make me want to become a king so that I could make up lies about things I invented. Does that count? It doesn't count, but it's really on brand. <laughs> Sorry, Ellen, I'm sure your point was much more <laughs> much more valid than my crazy ramblings and want for power. <laughs> well, I was going to say there's a couple parts where he references cookbooks. And I think another way, like if Spingler decided to kind of redo this book in a different way, would be a cookbook. Like, I think it would be a good reference to someone writing a cookbook about the Silk Road and wanted to know some of the history of the food that they're eating. And if they were writing a cookbook, it could be really interesting. And I think he does like mention a few that I highlighted that I kind of wanted to check out because mm-hmm. it's cool. Yeah, like was... it's cool to know the history of what you're eating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was one that he said there was a recent English translation. I was like, mm, I have to get my hands on that. <laughs> and also he mentioned that ancient Romans like mostly had everything with coriander, which shocked me. Like, did you, do you remember that? Like, I don't, when I think of Roman food, I do not think of coriander. This was just completely bizarre to me. There was something that struck me at the end um, in the last chapter when it's about the conclusions of the entire thing, where he sort of recaps this idea that so many of our current impression of what a cultural food is, um, he talks uh, about like Italian food specifically, um, we, we sort of have this image of Italian food of being like pasta and um, tomatoes specifically. And these things are like the pasta and weed were introduced much during the Silk Road times, but tomatoes were during the colonial times, like they came from uh, South America. And so that, yeah, that that fits to this idea that, yeah, we we think the Romans ate sort of a a more crude version of what is eaten today in Italy. But it, it was completely different because so many of the staples that we know now as Italian food 
were relatively uh, late introductions to to their cuisine. Yeah, and that's so that comes up a lot in the conclusion, as Yoram says. But there was also a bit, um, page thirty-five, so quite early on, where he just describes how Marco Polo didn't invent pasta and didn't bring them back from China, and it was clearly already around, and he knew about it before he visited because he was writing about it as a familiar thing, and that that filled my heart with joy because I have a lot of close Italian friends who are always like, "Oh yes, we invented pasta," and it's like, "No, look, this book, I have a book now, a reference, which says that it, it wasn't from Marco Polo, like it was all from." China and via the Silk Road. So that that brought me a lot of joy in my nasty, nasty heart. Was there a crop where you were surprised that it was part of the Silk Road trade or that, um, yeah, where you, where you sort of never thought about its origin before and now reading about how, how far it traveled um, and its importance that sort of uh, amazed you or surprised you? I didn't know millet was as important as it was. I... <laughs> confess that in my life I haven't thought that much about millet and it turned out to have a really important role in our history as humans. Mm -hmm. No, I, I agree with that. But then also there was something on barley and how um, one of the types of barley could be grown like on the mountains and how that was important for Tibet. And again, like barley and Tibet were not two things that come together naturally in my mind. But yeah, yeah. for me, it was wheat. Um, this idea that like wheat is such a common grain here in europe that i never thought about um yeah i thought it was was it was cultivated here for forever and it has a pretty long history but what i never really like put my mind around is that it originated in the middle east and then it sort of traveled east and west at the same time and that's why wheat is such an important grain in china just as much as it is in europe um, because it was part of this trade it was just something that i yeah i never really thought about and i i found it interesting to to get my attention be like drawn to this 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 idea that yeah it, it was mm. human trade uh very early on that made sure that like now you can have like uh steamed wheat buns in china and you can harvest uh wheat here and bake uh, bake bread from it and it sort of comes from the same place and has just traveled a long distance in like literally thousands of years ago can can i say my favorite mythology <laughs> yeah there was one in the tea section, which I also think was one of the better the better parts of the book, the teas and the spices. Um, so the mythology of how tea came to exist, the species. Um, one myth is that there was a man traveling from Japan and as on part of his journey, he was trying to pray, but he'd been traveling a long time and he couldn't stay awake and he fell asleep. And then in penance, he cut off his eyelids. Either he fell asleep and in penance, he cut off his eyelids or he cut off his eyelids to stay awake. I'm not sure. And threw them on the ground. And from there, tea sprang out. And then the other version is slightly less gory. And it's a man who was trying to meditate and he fell asleep. And yeah, I think him in penance, he shaved off his eyebrows and put the eyebrows on, on the ground, which is a little bit less disgusting than the eyelids. Um, but either way, tea we now know evolutionary comes from eyebrows and or eyelids um and i think that's that's really really beautiful and i've never heard this mythology before it's really cool should do some dna testing on it and see if there's like horizontal gene transfer from eyelids yes. to tea <laughs> but also like i mean it's it's a nice story because i mean tea has caffeine in it and this is again like it would have been the source of caffeine at the time so this idea of it keeps you awake and therefore it's linking it to the eyes i think that's 
there's kind of some logic there, isn't there? I have this part about mare's nipples that I also wrote down. Please please tell us about about the nipples. nipples. Let's do the nipples. Okay. This is the name of a grape. Do y'all remember this? Another contributing event may have been the Tang Conquest of the Gaoqin Oasis city-state near Turfan in AD 641, which solidified the imperial control of exchanges on the Silk Road. This may have led to the spread of a legendary land race variety of grapes from Central Asia into China, mare's nipples, cultivated widely in Taoyu in the Shaanxi and celebrated in Tang poetry. An account from 8647 described this grape variety as having clusters of purple fruit two feet long. That is some wild uh-huh. mare's nipples. <laughs> this seems like a mistranslation. <laughs> two feet long. Yeah. Feet purple. long. <laughs> yeah. That's not a nipple though. That's something else. Like from if we think about horses, like <laughs> there's another yeah. cliche that fits in it. It's not a nipple. I think what what it tells us that um mares have br- like were bred very selectively against nipple length in the last <laughs> hundreds or thousands of years um because but we don't really see that very, anymore. They said it made the very best wine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it sounds like it. <laughs> it sounds something you would drink in like a hipster bar nowadays and it's like yeah this is manipulable wine yeah <laughs> what else did you Beautiful. like <laughs> so i mean i i really liked the parts of the book where it got into like he was talking about the history but then he got into the kind of molecular or like the evolutionary side and particularly the domestication i thought that stuff was really cool information and obviously it matches with what i find cool but I really liked how you had this story which matched up where they all kind of intertwined. So there was like different aspects. Um, And the first one was kind of like the mythology. If it was in myths, it was probably really, really old. And then it's recipe books, as Ellen already said. So if it's in recipe books, you can also then date the, the domestication of the crop based on like, yeah, okay. I don't know, Pliny the Elder or Pliny the Younger wrote about this crop. And then it becomes a bit more tricky because depending on what type of crop you have, you have a different likelihood that it's going to hang around in the archaeological, um, what, what do we call it? The uh, guys? Uh, the, the, the artifacts or the, no. Yeah, it's like less like likely. Or mo- yeah, in the record. That's the one I wanted. Um, so like he was talking about there's, there's a much shorter section in And that's also why the millet section is so long in this book, right? Because he is primarily an archaeologist and this like millet is in the archaeological record and therefore it's it's maintained. Whereas any vegetable or onions, like these kind of fresher things, they rot and therefore you don't have the record of them. Um, And then on top of that, you have how domesticated the product was and how much it was changed during domestication and this also gives clues about its history so obviously again using onions as an example onions he says they're often feral which means once they've been domesticated they go wild again but also what we had domesticated wasn't really that domesticated so it's really hard to see when people kind of started farming onions because onions as we have them now are not that much different from wild onions Whereas with things like wheat and barley, you can tell when we started 
like acting on them because they changed so they they ga- they gained some qualities and lost other qualities and one that's really obvious is that a lot of um plants when they they have seeds their aim is to spread those seeds so they like have um seed uh, maturation mechanisms which involve like bursting or rupturing and the seeds either drop to the floor or they get flung long distances and a really important part of domestication of these crops for humans is that we find mutations where the plants no longer fling their seeds because we want to collect the seed from the plant without it being flung on the floor. So he was talking about how you can use the genetics and look at the different, um, like the f- um, the physical stuff, so the phenotype of whether there's now these guys which haven't been like opened up and flung everywhere, but then also about whether the change in phenotype comes down to one gene or different genes. And that also gives the idea of whether it was domesticated once or domesticated twice. And I thought this stuff was really nicely done. And in this case, he also quite nicely described the different scientific ideas behind, like so polyploidy or, yeah, um, I don't know, some of the concepts I thought were nicely described and, and it made a nice story as well where you're matching mythology, recipes, archaeology um, and then like physical um, phenotype and then also the genotype to get this story of like when and where these things came to be. I thought that was a really nice element. Yeah, yeah, that's it, it's true that um, there were at times really good links between these different approaches to investigating it and I also like whenever there were gene names... Um, that spiked my interest <laughs> because that's more the, the stuff that I usually read and usually care about. Do you have something else that you want to say before we sort of sum- summarize and say who this book is for? Uh, I liked there's a thing on page 188 um, where they were talking about when grapes started being used for wine. And the argument for a certain dating was that they found these large vessels and the vessel was they found a vessel and it was 50 liters and they had some residue in it but they couldn't tell from that if it was vinegar or if it was wine and their argument was it's a 50 liter vessel and every household can easily drink 50 liters of wine but not many households can go through 50 liters of vinegar so therefore (laughs) we think the people were making wine i was like okay but it could have been a vinegar shop like it could have been somebody who was making and selling vinegar (laughs) like this is not your argument is i really like wine i'm not that into vinegar on my chips like this is your entire (laughs) i'm not sure (laughs) but i I like that bit a lot uh and then some other cool things Uh, i found out that all of the grapes we have at one stage they basically changed the rootstock of the grapes so there was like an infectious disease um uh phylloxera which was basically causing them all to die and they had to switch out so all the grapes we have in europe now they're actually grown on north american grape species stock um and otherwise we wouldn't have grape and all of this italian and french and spanish wine that people are so proud of you should thank the north americans for that yeah, yeah texas wine <laughs> <laughs> although it's it's just grafted on it like they, they have to resist yeah. roots um sort of the the parts that make the fruit that are still um very different between them and it all happened like that's in the, true in the last 150 the years theorem. or something um so it's it's not something from a silk road but yeah that was also an interesting fun fun little uh, tidbit there and then my final fun fact that i liked was about the sichuan peppers which was at the very end um so sichuan pepper it's this i guess it's a berry maybe um that causes like it's spicy but it also causes numbness it has this weird kind of dettol flavor and it's obviously really popular in sichuan cooking 
Um, but they said that it was actually banned to have Sichuan peppers in the US in the 1960s because the pepper can carry a bacteria and mm. this bacteria causes citrus um, canker. So because the US has this really um, big, um, it's a really big producer of like oranges and I guess lemons as well, but citrus, um, they banned it at that stage and nobody could have Sichuan until 2005 when it became okay to have heat treated Sichuan again. Mm. And I thought, Yeah, I, I like know. that part too. I love Sichuan. Yeah, and I'm glad that we can have it now here in the U.S. Yeah, I didn't know that was a thing where I was like, okay, now we just can't have this pepper yeah. anymore. Yeah. Mm. Now I want to cook Szechuan noodles. Now all of our citrus is um, doomed anyway because of citrus greening. So. <laughs> oh no. Hey, that was all yeah. of the fun st uh, the stuff that you liked, Tegan. I think uh, what, what what I learned most is that you read the book. <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't. I so actually that, that was the thing like it was really really dense um so i ended up putting a ton of like sticky notes throughout my book and yeah i couldn't necessarily process the information because it was so dense at the time but then i came back and i was like rediscovering these little gems i was like oh yeah that's so cool that little fact and oh look at this and like like wheat was not possible to like we all had millet because we couldn't grow wheat because it requires so much irrigation like until we had worked out how to do irrigation properly we basically couldn't have wheat spread throughout europe because it just was uh, throughout mm. yeah europe and asia like these kind of things where i just like maybe i'm just ignorant but i hadn't thought about that and it was like oh yeah that's like a a fact or like barley there's two types of barley one of them has a hull um and that's like good because that barley doesn't dry out too fast. You don't need to water it as much. But on the other hand, you really have to bit it up if you want to like use it um, to eat, to make flour or anything. On the other hand, there's a naked variety, which um, dries out faster, but much easier to use. So like these kind of things, I, I find that really, I just don't know anything about it. And I found them really little fascinating gems throughout the book. So I did enjoy that a lot. So who is this book for? Mm. Someone doing research for another book. <laughs> Yeah. People who like reading Wikipedia articles that start with list off was my suggestion who this is for. I think it's for people, yeah, who want to who don't want to read a novel. It's not an I I don't think it's a novel. It's it's as you said, it's not a book that you sit and you think I'm gonna read it. It's something where you think, Oh, I really wonder about this and then you go and um yeah, have a little look. Yeah. You're like, I'm writing a cookbook a cookbook that involves millet. I need to know <laughs> about the history of millet and then you need this book. I think we all agree that the millet section was too long. I think that's maybe just because we don't have enough personal contact with millet in our lives. Um, maybe, the, yeah. To me, it was almost comedic when the broom corn millet, se broom corn millet section ended and was like, oh, finally. And then the next section, and now about foxtail millet. <laughs> and I, that's the thing, like, I don't know what a fox, what is a foxtail millet? <laughs> I, yeah. I, I don't know. But that was definitely the part where it, where it lost me, where I was just like, oh no um, but again if we were like people on the entire eurasian continent three thousand years ago or if we were russian children today we'd be like wow millet i love millet like I, I tell had, me more about I millet. Had millet before and i don't mind millet i think it's an interesting grain and you can cook interesting things with it but uh, yeah um that was not isn't for me. millet making a comeback though isn't that the argument like all of these older oh that was something there was a very small section about lost grains like this really tiny bit where it's like oh there was a whole lot of things that we don't really eat anymore and i wanted to know more about those like this is what i'm really fascinated in going into the future all of these things that they're crops they're edible we did have them at some stage but they never made it into mass production 
And this, I think, is a topic which we're getting more and more interested in, especially as like the global climate is changing and we're realizing that we might be doomed if we don't diversify. So I wanted to hear more about this. There was a little bit about it, but... Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I went off topic. Who's it for? <laughs> yeah, I think for people with academic interest in, in the yeah. matter... Um, or people who really, really want to nerd out about historic sites Milan. or archaeological sites of um, yeah, crop record. Yeah, I think you do have to have a strong crop interest because I think also if you were an archaeologist or like uh, somebody who had an interest in like this area, I still think it's too specific for those people. I mean, it's just so heavily on the crops that if I was any other historian interested in like this this silk road region i don't think i feel still think this would be too dense for me how would you rate mm. it what's your rating alan for it my rating hmm, i think i would rate it one hemlock leaf out of five and i'm sorry to robert spingler the third um but i thought it was hard to read really hard to read yeah i think i'm giving it two and a half ruptured chloroplasts out of five because i <laughs> I also found it very tricky to read, especially like under time pressure. I may have left it to the last minute. Um, but I do find some of the information in there so interesting. It just had to be found amongst all of the other stuff in there. So, um, Wow, Tegan, you left this till the last minute and you still finished it. That is so admirable. <laughs> I only finished it because I gave myself like a month and a half. Or I guess I gave myself a month because we decided this last month. Yeah. And it took me like three weeks. <laughs> I guess I read 200 of the 270 pages in the last 24 hours. <laughs> Impressive. Wow. I, I was able because I am terrible at time management, you guys. Like That's why you have also I... all of this fresh memory of all of these things. No, plus yeah, sticky I, notes. Have, like, I have cat-shaped sticky notes, which like show me where all the awesome bits are in the book. That's why. I only got through this because I was like, I'm reading 5% a day. And then I stopped I after five percent. Because I think reading in a bulk let me kind of get like so there were some bits where I was like, okay, this is a bit less for me, so I'm gonna skim this bit a bit more. And it made I was much better at like sorting out when it's okay, this is very geological, uh, very geographical, I'm not so interested. So reading it densely I thought was was cool, but yeah. Each to their own, guys. Yeah. So my rating is two out of five apricots, figs, apples, almonds, sugarcane, pears, dates, flowers, <laughs> bananas, sour cherries, lemons, pomegranates, but not walnuts. <laughs> but what about the millet? There was no, there was neither foxtail nor brush. <laughs> broomcorn millet. millet in there. Damn no. it, broomcorn millet. <laughs> 50 pages of broomcorn millet and I still can't even remember it's called broomcorn millet. <laughs> Foxtail millet is the best kind of millet and I won't hear anything against it. <laughs> <laughs> no, like I, I, I have to appreciate the, the amount of research and knowledge that's, that's in the book. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the writing style, the structure, the complete lack of storytelling all made it that I, I, I would not recommend reading this book unless you really know what you're getting into and you really need this specific type of information. Um, because yeah, for I think for most of the stories, for the mythology, for the stories of the people, there's probably other books that explore this in a much more accessible way than this book did. That's it. What are we reading next month, guys? <laughs> yeah, I think you suggested something, right? Do you want to say... Oh, yeah, I, I think we should do a Tegan pick since yeah. you haven't done it yet. This was less of a pick and something... I think somebody told me I should read it or... I don't know how I came across this. You sent us a screenshot on Instagram where somebody recommended it. So I guess that's Brilliant. why you came across it. 
<laughs> brilliant um so clearly i have no idea how uh, anything i have no idea of anything um so the <laughs> you got influenced the, i was influenced um the the book is called the revolutionary genius of plants a new understanding of plant intelligence and behavior um and it's by stefano mancuso and Yoram just read us out some of the Amazon reviews and somebody said that it was not deep enough and um, a little bit too superficial, which I think is all what we need right now. So we're going to go with the superficial <laughs> book. No, I'm sure it's, yeah, it's got great. some pretty good reviews. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's next. If you guys want to read along with us, um, please feel free to pick up a copy. And yeah. you can also like um, message us on any of our kind of channels to ask us things or tell us what you want us to discuss yeah. next month um but bill bill we were some of us do read the book in the last week so don't expect us to tell you about the book in the next few days <laughs> yeah so you can reach us um you can reach tegan and i we are mostly found on the, our plants and pipettes stuff so at plants pipettes on twitter on instagram plants and pipettes if you uh, write us there and on facebook also at plants and pipettes if you write us there you can reach tegan and me and Ellen, where can people reach you? You can find me on my Instagram at Ellen Airplant. And you can find me uh, on Twitter as Plant Crimes. And you can hear my Plant Crimes podcast. I'm making a summer season that has to do with Yay. isolation stuff. So, By the way, your last episode, I really enjoyed that. Um, it was about oh, Animal Crossing you. and flower stealing in Animal Crossing. And I'm playing that game as well. <laughs> and um yeah i didn't know how to get black roses and in your podcast you give a little tip how to do that and uh, i have two black roses <laughs> now so thank you uh, i'm glad you enjoyed it and we're able to find the black roses <laughs> <laughs> make them yeah okay cool then um it was fun talking uh, with you guys about this book and uh, see you next month with our see next you book. next month bye Thanks, bye y'all bye The opening and closing music is from the album Green Ideas from Pine Vogue. You can find the music on Bandcamp where it is published under a Creative Commons license 3.0.